Well, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 32 through 39 will be our text this Lord's Day. Uh, if you were with us last Lord's Day, I started off by sharing a uh, story and illustration that mentioned in it that no one in our house had gotten the flu yet, and then this week someone got the flu. And so uh, Caroline came down with the flu on Friday, so uh, you can be praying for her and this week, I think I'll start off by saying that this year I've not had Chick-fil-A yet, and I've not won a trip to Hawaii. And so, we'll see how that plays out. Um, but we are coming back to Hebrews chapter 10. If you were with us last Lord's Day, uh, this uh, passage we looked at last week was a very strong warning. Uh, the book of Hebrews has several warnings, and perhaps uh, the strongest warning in Hebrews, even one of the strongest warnings in Scripture, uh, came in that text last week where there's a, a strong warning there uh, not to rebel against the Word of God, not to rebel against the Gospel of Jesus Christ, to fear uh, the coming judgment that God will bring against those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. Uh, this warning comes in the context of a letter where the writer of Hebrews is speaking to people who are tempted to walk away from their faith, to, to be apostate. Uh, many of these Hebrew Christians were being persecuted uh, by their Jewish neighbors to forsake their new faith in Christ and walk away from it. Some had done that. Others were considering that. And so it's in that context that the writer warns them about the danger of turning from the gospel and says, hey, if you turn from the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no other place for you to go to find salvation. And so the question then comes, how, how do you follow up such a stern warning. What do you say next? And what the writer does now is comes off of this warning with an encouragement. Uh, he encourages specifically those who have genuine faith in Christ, those who have not fallen away, to stand firm in their faith and to hold on to the confidence they have in Jesus. And so I pray uh, that this passage will be an encouragement to us today, especially as we consider what it looks like to walk with Jesus and to trust in God in the midst of suffering. Because that's the topic that the writer brings up as he continues now in Hebrews chapter 10. So with that introduction, uh, if you're able to stand, if you would, out of reverence for God's Word, as I read our sermon text for us today. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. This is what the Holy Word of God says says but recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. 
you will pray with me. Father, I do pray that we would walk by faith and live by faith, especially in the midst of suffering. Lord, there are people here today who have suffered greatly, some that are suffering even in this moment, and others, Lord, who may have no idea of the suffering that is to come. Help us, Lord, in the midst of considering how we are to respond to suffering, to see the need to cling tightly to our faith in Jesus. And Lord, we pray you would sustain us in that faith, that you would help us to endure in that faith through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've mentioned before as we've come to the, the topic of suffering in God's Word that when we suffer trials and, and various things in our life, it has a way of doing one of two things for most people. For some, it drives them deeper in their faith and closer to God. They grow in their faith in the midst of suffering and trial. But for others, when they face trials and suffering, they seem to move farther away from God. And it seems to have one of two of those responses in the hearts of people. They either move towards God or they run from God. We see this throughout the Word of God and we certainly see this throughout history and all around us, especially when we consider devastating events that have taken place in the history of our world. And perhaps there's none more devastating than when we consider the events of the Holocaust and the way that people responded to this, this great wickedness and evil that came upon them. One account we have of the Holocaust is from Elie Wiesel. He wrote a book entitled Night where he describes as a teenage boy what it was to experience the, the horror and the terrors of being taken to a concentration camp. And he writes about the night that he was on the train headed towards the camp and he saw that these billowing clouds of smoke coming out of the concentration camp, smoke that he would later realize was coming from the burning of bodies. Ellie wrote this, Never shall I forget that night, seven times cursed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath the silent blue sky. Never shall I forget that silence which deprived me for all eternity of my desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. It was that night that Wiesel would write that he lost his faith in God and that that faith would never return. We have many accounts of the Holocaust and we have some very different experiences or responses to their experiences. For example, in another book called Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, she too was taken to a concentration camp. She too watched in horror as wickedness and evil transpired all around us. She watched as her own sister Betsy lost her life in that concentration camp, and yet she had a very different response. 
She would recount in the hiding place how it was there in that darkness, in that evil place, that she grew deeper in her faith, that she would gather for a secret Bible study with other prisoners, that they would gather and sing in private hymns to God and they would cling tightly to their faith in God. She would later write this, I discovered that there's not a pit where God's love is not deeper still. Two people going through the same suffering with very different responses. How do we explain that? And how do we reconcile that? And how do we consider as followers of Christ how we should respond to suffering? And by God's grace, I pray none of us will ever experience anything as horrible as the Holocaust. But know this, according to God's Word, we will all experience some type of suffering. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way in his book on suffering, entitled Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, No matter how hard we have worked to be healthy and wealthy and comfortable with friends and family, successful in our career, something will inevitably ruin it. Suffering will come. For many of you, suffering has come. For some of you, you are suffering today. The question is, how do we, as a people of faith, How do we, as a people who follow Christ, how are we to face suffering uniquely as the people of God? And we find the answer to that question as we open up the pages of Scripture, particularly as we come to Hebrews chapter 10. Because here the writer is speaking to a people who knew what it was to suffer. A people who knew what it was to be persecuted for their faith. A people who knew what it was to have their property plundered and stolen and destroyed simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet in the midst of this suffering, they knew what it was to persevere and to endure. And so as we walk through this text together, I pray that we will be encouraged to persevere and to endure as well. As we look to this passage, I want us to consider three things, beginning with the first point I put there in your outline. The first is this, the reminder that genuine faith endures through suffering. Genuine faith endures through suffering. The writer here is writing about a time in the life of these Hebrew Christians when they suffered. He says there in verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. So notice what he says here. He says you suffered, but your suffering came after you were enlightened. That term means there that it was after they saw the light of the gospel and responded to the light of the gospel. This was after they placed their faith in Jesus. And so he's saying very clearly, you became Christians... And then you suffered. And that's important for us to understand that that, that biblically we see this pattern. People become Christians and then they suffer. And we need to recognize this all the more in our context today because there are people in the Christian community who want to say to us, well, if you've truly become a Christian, you shouldn't suffer. If you have enough faith, you will not suffer. 
If you really trust in Jesus, you're not going to struggle with death and disease and sickness and all these things like the world around us because Christ has overcome those things. And yet, what do we see here in Hebrews 10? We see a clear testimony where the writer is saying, listen, remember, you trusted in Christ and then you suffered. We need to remember that because the Scripture actually tells us to not be surprised when we suffer. Christians suffer. We see that in the Scripture and we see it in the world around us. Not just that. We see here the writer is encouraging these Christians who suffered to think back on their suffering. Again, in the Christian community, you have some who say, well, listen, don't think about the negative. Only focus on the positive. Don't ever look back on times of suffering. You just look ahead in faith to the positive. And yet, what happens here? The writer says, no, look back. Look back to that time when you suffered. And as you look back to it, be encouraged. Not only does he say that they had suffered as Christians, he says they had suffered because they were Christians. It was because of their testimony of faith that they were suffering to begin with. Verse 33 says sometimes you're suffering, he describes it as this, it says sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He says because of your faith in Jesus, you suffered so be encouraged. So, so why would that be an encouragement? I mean, why should it encourage you and I today to open up God's Word and for me to say to you, hey, if you're suffering right now, be, be encouraged. Now, that makes no sense to the world. Maybe it doesn't make any sense to you. Well, why should we be encouraged in suffering? Well, one of the reasons is because this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And you think about Jesus' words in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and following. He says, blessed are you. So not just be encouraged. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says you can rejoice and you can be glad when you're persecuted because look at the pattern of persecution throughout the Scripture. We go back to the very first murder in the Scripture. Cain kills his brother Abel and why does he do this? Because Abel is truly worshiping God and Cain is not. And Cain is jealous and he is angry and he takes the life of his brother. We see the very first picture of the persecution of the righteous and Cain killing his brother Abel. And that persecution continues. Jesus here says, remember what they did to the prophets. As you read about the prophets of old, you find great persecution, you find great suffering, you find prophets who are killed for speaking the word of God. And that pattern continues. We see persecution, obviously, in the life and ministry of Jesus. We see it in the life and ministry of His apostles. We see it in the life and ministry of these Hebrew Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And it doesn't end there. It continues as you study church history and how so many of these early followers of Jesus died and how they were persecuted. And it continues to today where we have brothers and sisters in the faith who will lose their lives for the sake of the gospel on this very day. How is that something that should encourage? Well, Jesus says, 
starts, it's going to happen. Jesus says this would happen. And Jesus says this has a way of putting our focus on that which cannot be destroyed and that which will never perish. He says our temporal suffering points us towards a greater reality. And if you have genuine faith, you will endure through this suffering and you will look forward and heavenward in the midst of it. Notice what he says in verse 32, how these Hebrew Christians responded to this suffering. He said, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Now that word endured is a, a nautical term. It, it refers to staying the course. The, the picture here is of a ship's captain who in the midst of a fierce storm holds the ship on course to go to its destination. As the winds come, as the waves go over the bow, that captain is determined to stay on course. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says to his readers. He says, you endured, you stayed the course. In the midst of the storm, you did not turn around, you did not go the other way. And he points this out because the testimony of so many is that when they suffer, they turn and go the other way the testimony of so many is at the first sight of suffering and trial they shake their fist at God and they retreat and again this is what Jesus said would happen you think about the parable of the soils recorded there parable of the sower recorded there in Matthew 13 if you know that parable you know that Jesus uses a picture of a farmer and he says this this farmer there's sower he goes out to sow seed and he describes how the seed falls on four different types of soil and if you remember the parable of the sower only one of those soils actually produces ongoing fruit and he gives that example of the seed that falls on rocky ground Jesus says this he says other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Now, now what is Jesus talking about? Well, this is a, a great parable for us, because Jesus goes on to explain exactly what he's talking about. And so he tells us a few verses later what he means by this seed falling on rocky ground. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He endures for a little while. That's actually one term in the Greek. And it's the contrast of what the writer of Hebrews says here in Hebrews 10 about endurance. It actually is a term that means they don't endure. As soon as something hard comes, it's a temporary situation that they seem to have faith, they seem to be excited about their faith, but as soon as a trial comes, as soon as suffering comes, it reveals they had no genuine faith. That they retreat. They go the other way. Friends, how often do we see this in the church of Jesus Christ today? People who at one time gathered with us in these pews, gathered in other churches, they, they come into the church, they seem enthusiastic about the gospel, they're excited about the gospel, they, that they join in that excitement, perhaps are, are baptized with that excitement, they seem to have this joy. 
and then something devastating happens. That they suffer greatly. That there, there's a loss, a tragedy, a death, a sickness. Sometimes it's not that severe. It's a, it's a loss of a job. It's a financial situation. But whatever it is, it tears apart this notion that they had that if I just do my part, God will do His part. If I go to church and do the right things, then God will bless me and reward me. And then when it seems there is no blessing and no reward, will they just retreat and go the other way? Well, what's happening there? Jesus told us. It's not genuine faith. The seed has no root. And as soon as suffering comes, they go the other way. But he says that these Hebrew believers are to be encouraged because their faith is genuine, because they've met that faith with endurance, because that, that suffering has been confirmation in their lives that they indeed have genuine faith because they're persevering and they're continuing. And not only that, they seem to have joy in the midst of it. Which brings us to that second point in your outline. Genuine faith enables us, it enables us to have joy in the midst of suffering. Joy in the midst of suffering. He starts to describe this first by talking about this compassion that these Hebrew Christians have. In verse 34, he begins by saying, For you had compassion on those in prison. And so he's talking in the context of their suffering. He's talking about this joy they had. And one of the evidence of this joy, he says, is they had compassion on people in prison. Well, why would they have that compassion? Now, that word means they, they sympathized with them. And the reason's very clear. He's already cited it because many of them had been in prison for their faith. That they had suffered in this same way. And because they had experienced this type of suffering, they were better equipped to minister to those who were now suffering in the way in which they had suffered. Because this is one of the many, many reasons that God calls us to the faith together collectively as a body and not just as individuals and lone ranger Christians because we, we desperately need one another, especially when we suffer. Some of you have walked through devastating losses in your life. And as I have witnessed that and have walked through that with some of you, I've, I've noticed in your life and I've noticed in my life that one of the great ministries of the Lord to us is when He sends people our way who know what it is to suffer what we are suffering. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that you have to go through the same exact thing to minister to someone. We need the prayers of one another, the encouragement of one another. But, but there's something uniquely encouraging about someone who's walked the road that you're about to walk that they've been to the class, they've paid the tuition, they've gotten the degree, and they've survived. And they are able to minister to you and I in a very unique way. Why? Because in their suffering and in their endurance, they are a testimony of the grace of God that speaks to us in the midst of our suffering. And, and we need that. And God here says that. He says to the Hebrew Christians, you had compassion for those in prison. You, you could minister to those who were suffering in the way that you had suffered and the way that those you loved had suffered. So now you need, uniquely can minister to them. Not only that, he talks about how they minister. Verse 34, continuing, he says, and you joyfully, joyfully 
accepted the plundering of your property. He's saying that evidently for these Hebrew Christians, when they started to walk with the Lord and became Christians in the midst of this Jewish community, not only were they persecuted, not only were they outcasts, but there were actually angry mobs of people who came and plundered their stuff. They, they broke into their homes. They stole the things they owned. Perhaps they destroyed the things they owned. They plundered their property and they responded to this and the loss of these things with joy. Now, unless you are here this morning and you grew up in a different country, a different context, you don't have a clue what that's like. And neither do I. We live in a culture that still has elements of this country club Christianity. You join the church, you might get some more business. <laughs> We're the good guys. We're not being threatened by the government. Nobody's coming here to shut us down. That might not stay that way. That's the way it is today. And so there's this assumption in the Bible Belt community that, oh yeah, someone's, they're a member of such and such church. There's, there's not a lot of persecution that comes our way. And certainly, not the plundering of our property. But you consider for a moment what many of our brothers and sisters of faith today face in other parts of the world. Places where when they gather publicly and when they publicly profess their faith in Christ, they realize that they will likely lose their livelihood, their stuff, and maybe their lives. I mean, just imagine for a moment what it would be like in our context today if you left this church and you noticed there were some folks you didn't recognize, they were writing down license plate numbers. They started showing up at your work and asking questions. And you started to gather. They're trying to figure out things about your faith. And the more vocal you were in your faith, the, the more they seemed to be tracking you. And then one day they just show up with the police and they seize your property. They take your home. They take your bank account. And they put you out on the street. I mean, again, that, that is so far-fetched for us. But that is the reality in our world today for so many. Imagine that happens to you and your family. What is your first response? Let's be honest for a moment. How many of us, our first response would be to fight? And our first response would be to form a militia. And our first response would be to get our guns and our weapons and our friends. How many of us, our first response would be anger and frustration and rebellion? And then consider the response of these genuine believers in the book of Hebrews. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How in the world do you get there? Well, you get there by following the verse and what else it tells us because it helps us to see that the reason they could receive this with joy was because their trust and their hope was in Jesus. It wasn't in their stuff. That they weren't holding on to the things of this world. They were looking towards the things of the world to come. And friends, here is one of the foundational issues with comfortable country club Christianity today. We don't know what it is to long for heaven as we should. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we are far too comfortable with the things of this world. We build up a good life. 
We've got a healthy family and we just long for things to stay like they are. We look at our bank account and our retirement account and everybody's doing well and we just want to ride this thing as long as we can. And in the midst of that, friends, we are being lulled to sleep and numbed to the reality that this world is not our home. That this stuff is never meant to last. And that perhaps in the midst of suffering and persecution and loss, God opens up our eyes to see a greater picture of what is to come that we might long for it and hope for it and want for it more than we want the things of this world. And here we have a glimpse of those who seem to get it. And you can't get that unless you have Jesus. One commentator I read this week said it this way, and I I think he framed it so well. And speaking of what these Hebrew Christians endured, he says this, No unbeliever could possibly have responded to that in the way that they did. A non-Christian may tolerate his troubles, but he cannot rejoice in them. Hear that. A non-Christian may tolerate his troubles, but he cannot rejoice in them. Only Christ only Christ can enable a believer to do that. Jesus taught his followers to rejoice when persecution come. He said, blessed are you when men revile you. Rejoice and be glad. And what did he say? Because your reward is great in heaven. And God, by his grace, he, he shows us his word that our eyes might open a bit to what that reward looks like that we might long for it and thirst for it and hunger for it. And that's the picture we see here. Notice what he says there in the rest of verse 34. He says, Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He says, You have something so much greater and so much more lasting than your possessions, your property that were plundered. There's, there's something so much greater to come. And because your, your eyes were on it and your focus was on it and you were looking towards that inheritance, then, then you weren't sad at this loss. You actually took joy in this loss because you considered it joy to suffer these things with Jesus because it put your eyes on Jesus all the more. And in this, he says, we should rejoice in our suffering. And we're reminded of this by Peter in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 4, where he talks about just how great this inheritance is that is to come. He says it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Friends, what can you say of this world? Anything close to that? Your car? Imperishable? Unfading? Uh-uh. It's going to wear out, rust out. Your home? It's going to get old. It's going to need maintenance. Your, your bodies. i got to wear these with contacts just so I can read this. This used to be hair. It's not. This is fading. Passing. Everything around us is fading and passing. How many times do we look at old pictures and say, remember when? Because <laughs> it's not now. Everything in this world is a picture to us to look towards that which is different from this world, which is unfading and imperishable and kept in heaven 
for us. And God in His grace will even allow His children to suffer pain and loss and devastation to open our eyes to that. That we might see it, get a glimpse of it, and to hope for it. And, and I believe that that is foundationally what we see in this passage. That, that third point I've put there, this is where it all culminates. Point three, our, our present sufferings are here for a purpose. Our present sufferings, they produce a great hope of future glory. Why does God allow us to suffer that we might have hope and that which is to come? That we might loosen our grip on the things of this world and that we might tighten our grip on what is to come. Present sufferings produce a great hope of a future glory. And, and that is why, as you have suffered, so often I, I have sought to turn our attention in this church, in this pulpit, in hospital rooms, in funeral homes, so often. I've turned us to Revelation 21. And I'll turn there again with you this morning because this is the picture of our future hope. That this is what is to come. See in here. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also He said, Write these things down. These words are trustworthy and they are true. Friends, this is a passage that God has ministered to me greatly through. I can remember countless times sitting in a little NICU room at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital when our youngest Caroline was born and when we didn't know if we were going to walk out of that place with her and just meditating on that passage, Christ, you're making all things new. One day this will be no more. I have come back to that passage as I've sat with my little girl through countless surgeries. I've come back to that passage as I've sat with you in hospital rooms as you awaited surgeries. I've come back to that passage in recent days as I've walked through cancer with my father and I've sat there in oncology wards and I've watched person after person after person suffer. And it is in the midst of that suffering that our God is not silent, but with a loud voice proclaims, Behold, the day is coming. Will you place your hope in that day? And friends, if you don't, and if you won't, and, and if that just is shallow to you, and if you just look at that and say that, that doesn't help, that's nonsense, that, that is an indication that you may not have the genuine faith that God so desperately desires for us to have, that we might look to the things that are to come and hold loosely to the things that are. 
And to remember that that day is coming, even in our day here when we suffer the greatest, when Jesus himself says, Behold, I am making all things new. When he himself wipes every tear from our eyes. God's gift to us in our suffering is that in our present suffering, we might learn to have a great hope in the future glory that is to come. And that is what we see here in these Hebrew believers. The writer continues by telling them then, this is the confidence we have, this is the hope we have, this is the promise we have, so hold on to that. Verse 34, he says, don't don't throw away your confidence. That's your great reward, that that confidence in what is to come. You, You have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He's saying this future glory is the reality, that this is what is to come, and this is what we are to long for and hope for and to look towards in the midst of our suffering. This is the promise of God, and God is always faithful to keep his promises. And then he reminds us of some of those promises. In verse 37 and 38, he, he quotes here uh, from several passages, primarily from Isaiah and from Habakkuk. He quotes and says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come back and will not delay. He says, A little while. You think about that phrase, that sounds like so soon, and yet for, for us where we are, it seems like so long. If any of you have been on a road trip with young children, you've heard that question. <laughs> How much longer? <laughs> and we, well, it'll just be a little while. Well, we're dying. <laughs> we're thirsty. We've got to go to the bathroom. We're hungry. And literally, you're, you're five minutes away. And, and they feel like we're never going to get there. And what do you say? Just, just hold on. And you might say other stuff, but <laughs> just a little while, just a little while longer. Friends, you see the picture there? We're, we're the impatient child so often with God. How much longer, God? How much longer? And God in His grace and sovereignty says to us, just be patient. God's plans always come to fruition. He always keeps His promises. I think it's interesting to note here that he quotes from Habakkuk. If you know anything about Habakkuk, you know that during that time, There's just widespread godlessness and wickedness and evil. And Habakkuk was crying out to the Lord for for God to do something. And what does God say? In a little while. In a little while. And maybe this morning you you are in the midst of suffering. And you're in the midst of trial. Hear hear God's words. In a little while. He'll make all things new. He will always do what He promised to do. And therefore, therefore, verse 39, we we don't shrink back. (laughs) He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. That, That term shrink back, it's a military term. It's the picture there of retreat. He's saying there are some that, that they, they're marching with us, but as soon as there's a barrier, a trial, an enemy, they turn and they run away. They shrink back. And that's not you. It says you've endured. God, God takes no pleasure in those who walk away, but, but you have endured. And so keep enduring and keep persevering and all the more in the midst of your suffering and this is the grace of God that we might press on and we might persevere and we might endure 
in times of trial. And my prayer for us today is that we would do that very thing, that we would experience the grace of God in our trials and in our suffering. And so in just a moment, we're, we're going to sing about God's grace. We're going to sing that familiar hymn, Amazing Grace. You, many of you know the story of Amazing Grace. It was written by John Newton. He was a man who ran desperately from God. He sinned abundantly. But God in His grace saved Newton and brought him to faith. He became a minister of the gospel. He went on to write great hymns like this one. He, he's a man that as you study him, he, he didn't face tremendous suffering in his life. He, he suffered like so many suffered, but God surrounded him with people who did suffer greatly. And he was able to be an instrument used by God to minister to them. He, he would go on to write this about suffering. Newton said, some Christians are called to endure a disproportionate amount of suffering. Such Christians are a spectacle of grace to the church, like flaming bushes unconsumed, and cause us to ask, like Moses, why is this bush not burned up? The strength and stability of these believers can only be explained by the miracle of God's sustaining grace. The God who sustains Christians in unceasing pain is the same God with the same grace who sustains me and my smaller sufferings. We marvel at God's persevering grace and we grow in our confidence in Him as He governs our lives. Do you see that picture there? How do believers suffer disproportionately and yet they endure it is the grace of God and it is that grace which should motivate us all the more to walk by faith and not by sight Newton wrote some other words down as I've mentioned amazing grace and so we're going to sing that together but before we do I want to read this hymn to you and again consider what Newton is saying here about the life of the believer and enduring suffering he starts out saying that familiar, familiar stanza. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. With, found was blind, but now I see. He's recounting his testimony of faith here. He goes on to say, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious, how precious did that grace appear." the hour I first believed. So here Newton says, that this is the gospel. This is the grace of God. This is what saved me. But notice what he says about how that gospel sustained him. It says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And then he starts to turn towards these promises of what is to come. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And then he writes about what is to come. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Friends, may that be the testimony of our heart as we sing today.